Well, hey, good morning, church. Great to be with you this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Mike Reinsel. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And can I just say at the front end of this message that this is a really good day for you to be in church. Whether you're here for the first time or whether you're here every Sunday, this is a really good day for you to be in church because we are dead center in the middle of a message series called X Multiply. Let me hear you say X Multiply. X Multiply is a 10-year vision for our churches as we head to the year 2033 and the celebration, the 2,000-year celebration of the Great Commission when the last thing that Jesus said before he went up into heaven is to go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And we've been asking ourselves as a church, what if, what if, what if the last thing that Jesus said before he went to heaven is the first thing he's gonna ask us when we get there? And so over the last four weeks, we have been rolling out the first four initiatives. In week one, we talked about being a nonstop house of prayer that every day of every week, of every month, of every year for the next 10 years, that we would be people deeply rooted in prayer and that we would be creating environments for individuals and for groups and for corporate worship and that we would uh, be creating those environments so that people learned about prayer and poured into prayer and that we uh, lived into prayer and that we led out of prayer. In week two, we talked about being a disciple-making church that over the next 10 years, we want to train and equip 10,000 disciple makers, disciples who are making disciples who are making disciples who are multiplying discipleship. And so uh, in week three, we talked about that we want to be a church that is prolifically sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we wanna be, as Stephen said, we wanna be crazy farmers who are just relentlessly and crazy sowing seeds of the gospel wherever we can. You heard Sean talk about it with the students yesterday. They went to Wills Park and to downtown Alpharetta and downtown Crabapple, and they were prolifically sharing the gospel. And that's what that third initiative is, is that over the next 10 years, we would want to see the gospel shared 344,869 times. Last week, last week, Sean preached about baptism and we had two baptismal pools up here and he basically said, here is water, what keeps you from being baptized? And last week, church, between our two campuses, we had 33 people step into the baptismal waters and proclaim their relationship with Jesus as Lord and Savior of their lives. Yeah, that's something to celebrate. And so today, today is the fifth of our 10 initiatives. And we focus today on being people of compassion, on being a church who exemplifies compassion. And this part of the vision, it really invites us to who Jesus was, a person who cared deeply about the least of these. And I wanna tell you on the front end of this message that this message isn't light and airy. This one's a little bit heavy. This one's a little bit deep. And so I just wanna say that on the front end. And so this vision is gonna invite us into serving, perhaps in a way that you have never served before. 
And I'm not talking about greeting people or working security or checking in kids or serving coffee. I am so glad that you are doing that and don't get that twisted. But this is a different type of serving. That is hospitality serving and this is different. What we are talking about today is different. What I'm talking about here is serving at a deeper level and serving people who mostly don't look like you and me. People who look different, who talk different, who think different, who have different educational and socioeconomic backgrounds, who come from different neighborhoods, people who are different than us in this room. The poor, the widow, the orphan, the trafficked, the prisoner, and the unborn. The vulnerable, the marginalized, the lost, the forgotten, the forsaken, the abandoned, the disenfranchised, the people that Jesus cared about and that I think we as a church need to care about. The people that Jesus called the least of these. So let me pray for us and then we'll dig into God's word and see what he has to say for us. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you that we are a church of compassion, that we are people who care about the least of these that Jesus cared about, that we are people who love you and love others and want to live that out in our lives. And I pray today, 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 that you would convict us in a deeper way toward that end, that we would walk into the lives of people who are different than us, that we would love them well, that we would care for and about them well, and that through that process, they might be led closer to your heart. And it's in the beautiful name of Jesus that I pray. And the people of God said, amen. So if you brought your Bible today, I invite you to take that out. Um, I don't see a lot of movement. If you have your phone and your Bible is on your phone, a glow-in-the-dark Bible is better than no Bible. So take that out. And turn to Matthew 25. We're gonna spend the majority of our time in Matthew 25. And I want you to say, see that um, this story is the last of the parables in Matthew's gospel. And it was a response to the question that the disciples had asked Jesus back in chapter 24, a chapter prior, in verse 3, as they sat together the night before his arrest and death. And the Bible says this, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us. When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They're, they're, they pulled him aside, and they want to be in this little exclusive conclave with Jesus. One, maybe because they're embarrassed, but two, they just want this intimate time with Jesus to find out what the end of the age is going to look like. And then in chapter 25, Jesus proceeds to tell us three stories, three parables, that answer the question that the disciples were asking. Stories of the final judgment. Not warm and fuzzy stories, but stories that answer the question that the disciples are asking Jesus, what will the end look like? Now, I admittedly had to do a little more research than I usually do about this because sheep and goats are foreign to me. I grew up in Detroit, and in Detroit, there aren't a lot of sheep and goats, and so I left to college at 18, never having seen a live sheep or goat. And I learned a lot. I learned that sheep and goats are often herded together. And because they're living life together and they're getting dirty together, from afar, it's really difficult 
to distinguish sheep from goats. Christina, my wife, and I were in Israel recently, and as you're driving through the countryside, there are a lot of open fields, and you can see um, cattle and sheep and goats, and honestly, my eyesight might be a little bad, but I couldn't tell them apart, and so I would often lean over to Christina and say, are, th are those sheep or are those goats, or are they together? And I was thinking of this story. But the, the truth is they spend their entire day together, and they're only separated at night by the shepherd who knows them well enough to separate them. And Jesus is saying, I am the shepherd, and I'll be able to tell them apart in the end. Jesus says in verse 31 that the Son of Man, that's him, that's Jesus, will come in glory and sit on his glorious throne. And he says as the good shepherd that he will have no problem distinguishing the sheep from the goats. And he says basically that one day there will be a day that comes and I will separate them and I will separate them well and I will separate them justly and I am qualified to separate them. There won't be any confusion. There won't be any sheep saying we should be with the goats. There won't be any goats saying we ought to be in the sheep group. The reality is that Jesus is the great shepherd, and he will decide where the goats go and where the sheep go. And so Jesus, in this story, that, um, this parable that uh, Eric read for us, Jesus is describing kind of metaphorically, and he says the sheep are on the right, and the goats are on the left, and the sheep will inherit the kingdom of God. This group over on my right, they're going to inherit the kingdom of God, and the goats on the left, not so much. So if you came in church and you're on the left-hand side of the church today, really bad choice of seating alignment. You can take a minute and move over to the right side if you want to. But listen to the language that Jesus uses in verse 34. He says, then the king will say to those on his right, come, come, you who are blessed by my father and inherit, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The word come here is invitational. God deeply wants us to be with the sheep. And God just radically invites us into that group. And he invites us to inherit the kingdom of God. It's a free invitation. It's a no-cost inheritance. And because of his death, we have life. But let me be clear about what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that we can get there by what we do. It doesn't say that we can feed enough poor, that we can take in enough orphans, that we can rescue enough trafficked to get into heaven. You see, what Jesus is clearly saying is you inherit the kingdom because of me, because of my death, because of my resurrection, because of my sacrifice. I did this for you. But he also says how you treat the least of these is not a qualification to get you into the kingdom, but how you treat them is evidence of the faith that saved you. And what Jesus is saying is that what we do for the least of these is like doing for him. It's like doing for Jesus. And the king will answer them, he says in verse 40, truly I say to you, as you did it for the least of one of these, my brothers, you did it to me. 
You see, I think that God's heart is so tied to the poor that a move against the poor, a move against the vulnerable, a move against the marginalized is a move against God. And he views those two so closely tied together that if you serve them, we're actually serving him. And serving the least of these is not just something we do. Serving the least of these is someone we are, someone we become. And so I wanna look at this fifth initiative of this X multiply vision. It's on this, it'll be up on the screen behind me. It's a commitment to serve the poor, the prisoner, and the orphan. And Jesus said in Matthew 26, 11, the poor you will always have with you. And James said in James 1, 27, true religion is caring for widows and orphans. And Jesus said in Matthew 25, 40, whatever you have done for the prisoner, you have done for me. And it will be impossible, church, it will be impossible for us to elevate the name of Jesus without caring for the least of these. Let me say that again. It will be impossible to live out what is in six foot letters in the foyer to elevate the name of Jesus without caring for the people that Jesus cared most about. And so over the next 10 years, we will give away a million dollars. We will literally invest a million dollars in ministry and mission to serve the least of these, to serve the poor, the orphan, the unborn, and the widow. We will partner to see a 1,000 women and girls set free from trafficking in Jesus' name. We will see foster homes opened and orphans adopted, and we will partner to end the generational cycles of poverty in Clarkston. Now I know because I'm like you that when you look at this initiative that you come with some life experiences that speak into how you feel about these groupings of people. Things that you've seen, things that you've heard, maybe things that you have read that have shaped how you feel about the people that Jesus refers to as the least of these. And while I doubt that there are many of us in this room who would turn a blind eye or a deaf ear towards serving the least of these, I believe that many Christians have simply never been told that to be a Christian will cost you something. Let me say that again. Many of us have never been told as believers, as followers of Jesus, that that commitment will cost us something. Many of us were simply sold a version of salvation that has led us to believe that it's gonna cost us nothing. It costs Jesus everything, and we often believe it should cost us nothing. A version that permits us to go on essentially the same way that we were before they knew Jesus, but for having a free pass to heaven or a get out of hell free card. But that's not what Jesus says. That's not what the Bible says. God's will isn't about getting him on our agenda. God's will is about getting us on his agenda. And his agenda, yeah, amen's good. And his agenda is serving the least of these. His agenda is investing in the lost, the forgotten, the forsaken, the marginalized with our time, yes, 
With our resources, yes. With our talents, yes. With our money, yes. Lester Roloff says, churches become poor if they become rich and care not for the poor. And so we're gonna invest a million dollars over 10 years in serving the people that Jesus cared deeply about. And the money to do that, honestly, is already here in this room. It just happens to be in your pockets instead of the poor's pockets. But we can change that. For those of us who claim to follow Jesus, once you surrender your life to Jesus, you are a new creation, and that new creation comes with responsibility. As a new creation, we are called to live lives that will cost us something. And make no mistake, loving the least of these will cost you something. To have compassion for the vulnerable and the marginalized the way that Jesus did will cost you something. It might be your time, it might be your money, it might be your comfort, it might be all of those put together and more, but that's what God calls us to. Think about it for a second, it's all through the Bible. The shepherds gave up their time. The wise men gave up their gifts. Joseph gave his lifelong support. Mary gave up her reputation. The disciples gave up careers and security. Lydia gave up her house. Paul gave up her stat his status. And Jesus, Jesus gave up his life. But the reality is that as people living in Milton, Alpharetta, Sandy Springs, where our campuses are, we're being programmed to focus on us. Nearly everything in the culture today tells us that it's all about me. Social media, advertising, the workplace, our schools, everyone around us is teaching us that life is about me. And that being successful means perfecting Project Self. As the great theologian Toby Keith once said, I want to talk about me, I want to talk about I, I want to talk about number one, oh me, oh my. That's how we live. We live focused on us. We are programmed to accomplish and to acquire and to accumulate. Let me say that again. We are focused to accomplish and acquire and accumulate. And while running after some level of those things is not inherently bad, if we are running after them for us instead of for the kingdom of God, those things, if we aren't careful, can cause us to completely lose sight of the people that Jesus cared most about and can certainly and literally cause us to lose our soul. Now, I know that for many of you, you simply probably aren't aware or are at least under aware of the depth and the breadth of the need around us. And while I don't wanna overwhelm you with data, I thought it would be good to just dig into a few statistics around these issues that we're talking about, about serving the least of these the way that Jesus did. Our national poverty rate is 11.5%. 37.9 million people live in poverty in the U.S. Individual poverty rate is just below $14,000 a year in income. For a family of four, that's just below 28,000. 
And in Clarkston, in Clarkston, where we serve with Hillary Cheeseman and a bunch of people that we work with there, in Clarkston, the most ethnically diverse square mile in the U.S., 31% of the people living there live below the poverty line. And that is happening right in our backyard. 391,000 kids are in foster care nationally. Over 11,000 of those are in the state of Georgia. And coming out of foster care today, 50% are unemployed, pregnant, or homeless, or all three within one year. The U.S. leads the world in locking people up. About 1.2 million people are currently incarcerated in state and federal prisons in Georgia. I'm sorry, in the U.S. And prison ministry lowers the national recidivism rate. That's the, the rate at which released prisoners come back to prison because they commit additional crimes. They, prison ministry, if we go in and we serve those prisoners in prison ministry, it lowers that recidivism rate from about 66% down to just under 7%. Yeah, amen. There are 27.6 million victims of trafficking worldwide at any given time. People of all ages, genders, backgrounds, nationalities who are being coerced into illegal sex, illegal labor, a myriad of illegal things, and over one million of those victims are trafficked right here in the U.S. Hartsfield International Airport is the most major hub of human trafficking in our country. As uh, the last stat, 45% of all pregnancies are unplanned, and 40% of those unplanned pregnancies end with abortion. Now, if I haven't totally brought you down, I want to try and bring you up. As you see these stats today, I know that there are likely a multitude of reactions to that. Maybe you've lived in a bubble and you just had no idea about any of that, and this is just the first time that you have heard it. Maybe you see these stats and you think, these are such big, systemic, large problems. There, there is no way that a little person like me can address that. Maybe you've given generously to the church to address some of these. Maybe you pay your taxes and you just say, hey, that's, that's the church's job. That's the government's job. That's not my job. Or maybe, maybe if you're really honest, you see these people as responsible for the place that they find themselves in. And you believe that the decisions that they made got them where they are and that the situation they're in is their fault and that they deserve what they get. But whatever your perspective was coming in here today regarding serving the least of these, my hope and my prayer is simply that God will break our hearts today. That God will break our hearts today for the people and the things that Jesus was broken for. That God will burden us today with the things that break his heart and give us a strong conviction of compassion for his people. That God will give you and I the obedience to step in and express the compassion that Jesus did. And that he would give you and me the courage to walk into the mess that we call humanity. And that through you and I serving, those who are often the most inconvenient and uncomfortable people to serve, that God will change you and that God will change them. 
You see, what I've experienced in my life is that serving the least of these is tri-transformational. That's my word, I made it up. That is tri-transformational. When we go in and we serve the vulnerable and the marginalized and the disenfranchised, it transforms them and it transforms us and it transforms the kingdom of God. So let's talk about what it means to be people of compassion. Depending on your Bible translation, the word compassion appears in the Bible 145 times. That's a lot of times. It was important to God. And the Greek word usually translated compassion is splunkna. And it's different from how we define compassion. Our English translation gives us the impression that compassion is a heart thing or a head thing. But it was so much more than that in the Greek the original Greek translation. What, what Splunkna literally means is the stirring of our innards, the stirring of our intestines. And when the Bible tells us that Jesus had compassion, it meant that he had this inner gut-wrenching for the people and the things that broke his heart for the least of these. His insides were literally in knots when he saw the hurting and the broken and the vulnerable. So what if, what if this church, what if our church did something about that? What if our church had that splunkna, that gut-wrenching feel when we see people who are broken around us? Not just being sympathetic, but being empathetic. I had a conversation this week over coffee with a friend of mine, and he was talking about Israel, and he was saying, I just, I have such empathy for them. And I said, Brian, I, I'm not sure you're using the right word there. Define empathy. And as he did, I, I didn't think he had it right. I think Brene Brown has it right. She describes the difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is when you see someone in a dark 10-foot hole and you look down in the hole and you say, wow, bummer, bummer that you're down in that dark hole, and you walk away. What empathy means is that we get a ladder and we climb down into that hole and we embrace that person and we walk through life with that person and we help them get out of that hole. Church, we should be people of empathy. Our responsibility is to care for the poor and work for justice and it is mentioned in the Bible over 300 times. And Jesus had a consuming compassion for the people that he referred to as the least of these. It's all over the Bible. The orphan, the prisoner, the poor, the trafficked, the unborn, those are the people that Jesus cared most about. And we see it all through scripture. In Psalm 69, for the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Matthew 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Psalm 68, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary into a home. He heads out, or he leads out the prisoners to prosperity. Psalm 82, give justice to the weak and to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. James 1.27, visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And in Proverbs 19, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him 
for his deed. God actually says that we'll, we'll be repaid for what we should be doing anyway as followers of Jesus. So if Jesus modeled it, and the Bible talks about it so much, why, why is compassion so uncommon today? Even for people who follow Jesus, this is just not something that is natural for us. Why is this bold, sacrificial, Christ-like love of the least of these so rare among us as Christians? I think it's because we've been lulled to sleep by lives of comfort and distraction. Like the noise machines on our bedside that put us to sleep at night, we're often numb to the poor and the needs of the poor and people around us. A couple of weeks ago, we took, talked about the third part of our 10-year vision that we wanna have 344,869 bold gospel conversations, that we need to be crazy farmers, as I said earlier, just prolifically sowing seeds and watching as God grows up the fruit from sowing seeds. But I wanna tell you this morning that I think the gospel of Jesus Christ is holistic. It's not that we can just preach the words of the gospel and ignore or get a pass on meeting the human needs of those around us, especially the poor. And likewise, we can't just meet the physical needs of those who are suffering around us without verbally sharing the promise of the gospel that gives us eternal life. The promise that there is a God and that he is good that he created everything around us, he created it good, he desires good for us, there is a God and he is good. But there is a problem and it's called sin. Your sin, my sin, but there is a solution, there is hope and his name is Jesus. And all we have to do, all he requires of us is to surrender our lives to him. And so church, what Jesus brought to the least of these, to those he cared for the most. And I think what he modeled for us is to bring a holistic gospel to the broken around us, to the vulnerable, marginalized, disenfranchised people around us, and to live that gospel by word and by deed simultaneously. Six years ago, six years ago, I was leading a ministry called Mission Hope. We would go into remote, isolated villages in four different countries at the time. We would go to places where no one else would go because it was too expensive, too inconvenient, too dangerous. But that's where Mission Hope went. And we would meet people in these villages, we would build relationships, and we would empower them to move from extreme poverty of making less than a dollar a day in US equivalent. And we would empower them to move from poverty to sustainability and lead them to the heart of Jesus in the process. During my leadership of Mission Hope, I met a guy named Bruce Deal. Bruce leads a ministry that started 20 years ago called City of Refuge. It's down in downtown Atlanta, if you know downtown area. It's down in the hood, it's down in Vine City. Vine City is the worst zip code 
in the state of Georgia for every negative statistic you can imagine. Crime, drug use, human trafficking, murder, the list goes on and on. If there is a negative statistic, they own it down in Vine City. And City of Refuge went there 20 years ago and they said, the brokenness that exists here just isn't right. It's not okay. And so Bruce found an old abandoned 210,000 square foot warehouse and over time has remodeled and redone that. And it is now this transformational hub in the hood that is investing in the lives of the poor and the marginalized and the disenfranchised. And as I got to know Bruce and he got to know me, we realized that we were really like-hearted. We both cared about and for the same kind of people, us globally and him locally. And as I got to know Bruce better, he began to cast a vision of taking that city of refuge model and uh, multiplying it around the country into other cities. And I embraced that. And as I prayed about that, as Christina and I prayed about that, it was clear that God wanted us to move to Dallas and launch a city of refuge there. And so I left the mantle of leadership of Mission Hope with someone else. And Christina and I moved to Dallas. We sold our house. We loaded the truck. We left three adult kids and two grandkids. We had a Genesis 12:1 departure. Leave your family, your countryside, and your father's house and go to a land that I will show you. And off to Dallas we went. Our third day in Dallas, I was invited by a friend to visit a ministry that was having a prayer gathering. The ministry is called Men of Nehemiah. Men of Nehemiah reaches out to the broken of the broken. I mean, these guys have been through every rehab. They have taken every drug. They have slept behind every dumpster. They have been in prisons. They have been in jails. They, their lives are literal train wrecks, and they show up on the doorstep of Men of Nehemiah, broken and hopeful that there's something better than what they see in the rearview mirror. And so I walked in the door of Men of Nehemiah on my third day in Dallas, and I knew immediately I was out of place. There were 80 guys in there. Every one of them looked different from me. And honestly, I was the only guy in there without a tattoo. There were criminals, there were drug dealers, there were addicts, there were homeless people. There were broken, broken people. And as I made my way around that room and made conversation with those guys, I'll just confess to you that it was a really uncomfortable environment for me. Even with a ministry background, it was really uncomfortable. And then I met John, John Bress. John is six foot six, he's got a shaved head, he's tatted up head to toe. And so I met John and we started to talk for a little while. And after a few minutes, he said, dude, I wanna ask a favor of you. I said, what you would say to any six foot six tatted up guy that's asking you for a favor. <laughs> I said, sure. He said, I'm writing this devotional that I hope will lead people from the brokenness of life to a relationship with Jesus. And I would love if you would read it and give me your feedback. 
and he took out a wad of papers. He handed them to me. I took them and stuck them in my back pocket, and I didn't think anything of it. I got home that night and had dinner with Christina, and at the end of dinner, I was sitting on the sofa, and I pulled out those papers that John Bress had given me. And the first eight pages were John's life story of being molested at three, of having parents that were in and out of jail and rehab, of taking drugs I had never even heard of, of being in jails and prisons throughout his adult life, of being homeless, sleeping in crack houses and flop houses. I didn't even know what that term meant. And I found myself on my sofa on my third night in Dallas, crying like a baby. And my wife, in all the compassion she could muster, said, what in the world is wrong with you? I said, what in the world is wrong is that any human being, any man, woman, or child should have to deal with what John Bress has dealt with. But what is really, really right is that some followers of Jesus invested themselves in John's life. Some followers of Jesus told him about the promise of Jesus, and they walked him through the brokenness and the mess of his life, and he gave his life to Jesus, and his life is eternally transformed. Now, John and I became quick friends. We would laugh a lot. We cried a lot. We worshiped together. We worked and we played together. From time to time, John would come over to our house for dinner. On a rare occasion, we would go over to his. Sometimes we would even go out to dinner. That was infrequent because John had a very prolific four-letter vocabulary that he used often at restaurants. But both of us were really drawn to each other. Both of us envied each other. Me, he envied my success, my financial stability, my safety, my wife and family. For him, I envied his vulnerability, his transparency, his honesty, his rawness. But what I admired most about my friend John is that he had a daily desperate dependence on God that I didn't know I needed. I was the successful one. I had made plenty of money. I used God as a backstop, but John woke up every single day desperately dependent on the person of Jesus. Today, I refer to John as one of my dearest friends. And I really hope that, I hope he'd say the same thing about me. Now, you might never met, meet two men who were much different than John and me. But in the end, we're pretty much alike. And today, we're both followers of Jesus pouring into each other from completely different directions. On my next to last day in Dallas, I told John we got to get together for breakfast. And so John was working a night shift. I'm an early riser. We agreed to meet at the local IHOP at 6 a.m. And I walked in at 5.45 and I said to the hostess, is anybody waiting? She said, no. And she sat me down in a booth in the corner of the restaurant. And I waited till about 6.10 and John wasn't there and he's always early. So I texted him. I said, John, where are you? He said, I'm 
at a booth in the corner of the IHOP, where are you? And I got up and I walked from this corner around the restaurant, around the corner, and there was my friend John talking to the hostess. And I looked at the hostess, I said, when I came in, I asked you if anybody was waiting and you told me, no, what's up? And she said, there is no way that I put you and this man together in the same breakfast. For a long time, I thought that God put me in John's life to help him, to give him new life. After all, he was the drug addict. His life was a train wreck. But in the end, God has given me a great gift in my friend John. My friendship with him has given me new life. And in the end, our unexpected and our uncommon friendship is transforming lives for the kingdom of God. Remember, try transformational. When we walk into the lives of the broken and the vulnerable and the poor, they're changed, we're changed, and the kingdom of God is changed. Now, church, I'm going to invite you into something today that we don't usually do and that might be a little bit uncomfortable. As you came in today, there was a card like this on your seat. On one side is a place for you to fill out your name, phone number, and email. I want you to start doing that. And while you're doing that, I want you to think about the other side of the card. On the other side are five opportunities to serve what Jesus referred to as the least of these. In foster care, in refugees in Clarkston, in the unborn, in human trafficking, and in prison ministry. And I'm gonna ask you when the band comes forward to play our last song, to pray, God, do you want me to serve in one of these areas? Now, what you're signing up for, just to be clear, is an informational meeting about one of these five things. I'm not asking you to go into a prison yet. I'm not asking you to foster a child yet. I'm not asking you to give a million dollars to make all of that happen over the next 10 years yet. But God might be. And so I'm gonna pray for us. There'll be a prayer team down front if you wanna come up and pray with them. And as you leave today, there will be Connect Team members who are holding baskets. And if you will just give them your card and check whatever box or boxes you want to know about that informational meeting, I will personally reach out to you this week, tell you when it is, and I will be at each of these five meetings. And I hope that God will do extraordinary things as you step into the uncomfortable and the inconvenient to serve the least of these. Let me pray for us.